Welcome everybody to episode 19 of Ask Abhijit. I hope you're doing well. Today we are discussing geopolitics. So, like I've explained before, geopolitics is the game in which every nation pursues its national interest on the global scale, on the global stage. It's the pursuit of the national interest and the various advantages like power, influence, territory, etc., on the global scale and resources as well. and some nations make up the rules some nations follow the rules the strong nations make the rules everybody else follows the rules so that's how it goes so it's a pursuit of the national interest so the national interest is not some vague fuzzy undefined term it has a very specific and clear definition so let me show you what the national interest is let me just put it on this is the national interest safeguarding and promoting the long term security prosperity territorial integrity self determination and cultural integrity of the nation and its people so this is the national interest it's a rough definition of the national interest it is how i define it now every country has its own idea of the national interest uh, for example india doesn't believe in cultural integrity india's laws constitution and government policies actively undermine cultural integrity some countries uh, believe that uh, their national interest means conquering the whole world etc and some countries don't even pursue their national interest like india for a, for a very long time in the after independence did not really pursue its national interest it gave up so many advantages that it had for example it refused to be a permanent member of the un security council even though it was offered this position twice and much more so every country has its own way of either pursuing the national interest or not pursuing its national interest but it is the countries that pursue their national interest the most vigorously on the global stage that are the true world powers and the and the leaders of the world so that's all about national interest and geopolitics and as always you guys have asked me a wonderful questions a great deal of questions i have picked a few of these so let's get into it right away So AJ asks how can a country have nuclear weapons what's the process and how did a country like Pakistan manage to get nukes good question so first of all in order to get nuclear weapons a country needs access to resources such as raw materials like uranium ore or thorium which can be converted into uh, weapons grade uh, fissile material so uranium is the most uh, common Material, raw material that you get naturally occurring uranium is uranium 238 it's 99% plus uranium 238 but the weapons the fissile the material that is used in weapons is uranium 235 which is about 0.7% of what occurs naturally so uranium ore has to be purified and upgraded until it becomes weapons grade uranium which means it's about 80% plus uranium 235 So first of all a nation needs access to the raw material then it needs the ability to refine uranium and turn it into weapons grade uranium and so that is a complicated uh, technological process so you need to develop the technology to do it which is quite hard right you need to there are a number of ways in which you can purify uranium there are centrifuges and other methods too so that's a that's a big hurdle that one has to cross one needs also to have most likely i mean it's best to have a, a civilian nuclear program with nuclear reactor so you know how to handle these things and that also would enable you to create plutonium 
which is also something that is used as a wep- as in nuclear weapons it's another fissile material it's uh, another fissile element so you need to be able to I- obtain either weapons grade uranium 235 or plutonium then you need to be able to shape that you need the you need to know the technical know how of how to assemble a nuclear weapon a nuclear bomb right so that's actually pretty simple the nuclear physics is, is very simple actually but the engineering behind it is the complex part the complicated part so you need to be able to either assemble a simple fission device or a more advanced fission fusion thermonuclear device so this is all uh, this is all about engineering it's about uh, acquiring and perfecting the technology to do this and then you need to test it out because without testing you don't know if your device works or not and once you test it you need delivery systems so if you have a nuke but you don't know how to deliver it to your enemy right then there's no point having a nuke so you need either to invest in uh, various missiles other short range or long range ballistic missiles depending on where your adversaries are or you need to have another kind of delivery method such as uh, maybe an air force or aircraft that can go and uh, deploy the payload and drop the payload so these are the things these are the steps this is a very simplified streamlined overview of the steps it uh, it takes for a country to have nuclear weapons right so first of all you need to acquire the weapon then you need to be able to deliver it so to acquire the nuclear weapons is the main thing and how did a country like pakistan manage to get nukes well the pakistanis were given the technology by the chinese and the delivery systems were given to the chinese by the north koreans who are again a, basically uh, a proxy of the chinese so the chinese uh, intend to use pakistan as a destabilizing force over india on the western border and that's why they have done this that's why they have uh, proliferated the technology in the 80s there was some proliferation of technology from the west as well there was a scientist called abdul qadir khan who acquired blueprints of uh, i think uh, it was uh, blueprints of uh, nuclear reactors i believe from the west and that's how he was able to establish this khan research laboratories in kahuta etc and that has also enabled the pakistanis to develop their nuclear program so they have been able to develop it with the help of the west and of mainly of the chinese so that is the story in brief about nuclear weapons and how the pakistanis acquired them even the north koreans have to some extent been aided by the chinese but it kind of backfires because mr kim can also aim the point those nukes at beijing right in order to acquire more independence and autonomy from from mr xi so that's how it works okay question number 2 why isn't china declaring a war against india being so powerful and after how many years are they most likely to go on a war against india the highest form of warfare is to acquire your military objective without firing a single shot right it's what uh, what's that movie enter the dragon that's it's what bruce lee said it's what bruce lee called fighting without fighting so the chinese do not ever want to go to war with india or with anybody else they want to acquire the infrastructure and the military muscle and the diplomatic uh, power and every possible means of acquiring influence and power in order to coerce the world into giving it what it wants 
right? The Chinese never want to go, go to war with anybody. And why do they need to go to a war with India? India is doing nothing to threaten the Chinese. India is not developing into a very rapidly into a very powerful economy. India is not militarizing. India is not uh, going against the one China policy or whatever it is. India is doing nothing to threaten the Chinese. The, the Chinese are happy. They were trying to uh, do these incursions on the northern border, the India-Tibet border until last year. There was this Galoan incident in which they, they got a bloody nose. So they have recalibrated the, their strategy. And over the past year and a half, India has gone backwards. It's gone, it's gone, you know, it's uh, not progress at all because of the situation that we are in right now, the, the pandemic, right? So the pandemic has, has achieved everything China ever would have wanted to achieve. India's economy has gone backwards. India's space program is stalled. India seems to have just basically stopped, stopped everything. India is not making any progress in any, any sense. So the Chinese are happy. Why do they need to go to war? The Chinese economy is expanding very rapidly every, every year, including right now during the pandemic. And the world's economy has stalled. India's economy is also stalled. Everything has stopped. So they are doing very well. They are achieving all the objectives they would ever want to accomplish, right? In the short term. In the long term, the Chinese want India to be fragmented, balkanized. And I'm sure they are working on those things too. India has so many internal divisions, which the Chinese do exploit. They do have interests and investments inside India, whether we know it or not. They have investments in the media. They have investments in various political parties and in various corporations. They, there are FDIs. There are so many ways in which the Chinese are already invested in India. They're already pulling at certain strings, etc. The Chinese don't need to go to war ever with India, right? So that's what India needs to work on. Akash asks, what is the polar silk road and what could be the implications of the Arctic ice melting rapidly for Russia and for the whole world? Excellent question. Let's take a look at our, our map. Uh, let me put the map on. So this is the globe. Uh, let's zoom in. This here is China. China considers itself to be a near Arctic nation. So the Arctic is up north, the Arctic Circle, which is the northern parts of, of Russia, of Siberia, etc. So Ch the Chinese consider themselves to be a near Arctic nation. And as the global warming comes into effect, and as the see all, all this, this region that we see here, near the Arctic Circle, it's more or less in in recent memory been permanently shrouded in ice it's always ice bound so all of this blue that you see here the oceans they're basically unpassable unless you have an icebreaker which is a special kind of ship or unless you have a submarine that to a nuclear submarine that can be submerged for a couple of months or several months at a time so these passages here have never really been passable but now with this global warming coming into effect, the ice is melting in the Arctic region. And this could become an important waterway for trade and other purposes. So the Chinese are already planning ahead. They want to create infrastructure that allows them to uh, conduct trade with Europe via the Arctic Sea Route, which is from here, okay, if you can see my pointer, from here all the way up there and going there instead of going through the Malacca Strait and all these choke points, which India, if it ever wakes up someday in the future, could possibly choke off. So, so the Chinese are looking at exploiting this route 
for trade and other purposes. They already have ships that can do this. They have a very large naval, a merchant naval fleet, which has, serves a dual purpose. It is basically a civilian fleet, which uh, is used for transportation and maritime merchant activities. So they would like to exploit this. And so that is the implication. China could basically encircle Russia using this methodology. Uh, right now, the Russians are basically cooperating with the Chinese, but it is definitely something the Russians would be very much wary about, about being encircled by the Chinese, because at the um, to Russia's south, you have a very strong Chinese presence, as you can see on the map, right? This here is Russia, this here is China. Mongolia really doesn't matter. It's not a powerful country in any sense, militarily or economically. The Chinese can always overrun Mongolia. And so the Russians feel threatened by the Chinese. And if the Chinese were to establish a permanent uh, Silk Road, so to say, in the Arctic, it could become a bigger threat for the Russians, right? So this is all the game of geopolitics. Russia and China are quasi-allies right now, but uh, the game is more complex than it appears at first glance. So these are some of the implications of the Arctic ice melting and the Chinese trying to create a new trade route, the Polar Silk Road. It could uh, affect the EU, it could affect the US, it could affect the entire balance of global power. So that is what China are is China is contemplating right now. That's what they are vigorously planning for. And they are already put, uh, taking steps to put various kinds of infrastructure in, into, into position to do this. And Russia, as of now, is cooperating. But let's see how it goes. I don't see them being very happy about this in the long run. Okay, Jatin ask, asks, what role does ISRO play in strengthening India at the war front or at the military level? See, any space program always has a strong military dimension, whether it is stated or unstated. The first application of space is always in the, in the military realm. For example, recently India, a couple of years ago, I think, uh, tested uh, an anti-satellite uh, vehicle, an anti-satellite missile, which is a technology India should have developed in the early 2010s, but it was not the permission was not given to ISRO by the then government. So it's been done now. So space always has a great deal of, uh, a great uh, significant role to play in the military because space gives you a vantage point over the entire globe. If you have a network of satellites, it can be used for various purposes. India has a number of remote sensing satellites, a large number of these. Now, remote sensing is a euphemism for military satellite, because military satellites do precisely that, remote sensing. They look at the earth and its geography and its terrain through various different kinds of kinds of lenses. Uh, so in, in various spec, uh, in various uh, bands of the electromagnetic spectrum and all that to, to get different kinds of uh, basically data from the geographical terrain. So, so certain satellites are able to peer through clouds and nowadays, satellites have a very good resolution, like they can resolve objects that are like one foot in size or even smaller, maybe even smaller. Some satellites may be able to actually read the time on your watch if you are if you are standing on the ground. So that is the thing about satellites. They can give you a lot of data and information. Satellites can be used to coordinate military assets on the ground or in the ocean in real time. So every military asset knows whether it's a ship or a, or a tank or a or an inf infantry division, 
or any other asset, you can coordinate all of these different assets in real time to give the commanders a real time large picture about what's happening on the battlefield and uh, across the strategic uh, board. So these are the roles that the military, that the space program plays in the military front. And India does have naval satellites and other remote sensing satellites. India does have anti-satellite technology and so does Russia, China and the US and maybe a couple of more countries perhaps. So all of this does come into play. So having a strong space program is extremely beneficial for your military because it gives you a whole different dimension to the military chessboard. So ISRO does play a significant role in strengthening India at the war front. It is the, uh, it is the technologies that ISRO has developed that also find uses in the ballistic missile program, right? So if, if India needs an ICBM, the PSLV can serve as an ICBM, a stopgap ICBM, which can basically deliver payloads anywhere on the planet and so on. So, so it's, it's very useful and it's very beneficial to have a space program. So I am really thankful that it, at least in this field, India has taken the initiative and developed a reasonably good space program. I would like to see the space program develop further and faster. I mean, India has some of the best scientists in the world. India has the best scientists in the world. And I don't see why, I don't understand why ISRO is not being allowed to develop more powerful rockets. Why ISRO is not allowed being allowed to develop reusable rockets, right? Reusable space boosters like SpaceX is doing. A private company has gone leaps and bounds ahead of ISRO in less than a decade. SpaceX. Right? Why can't ISRO do that with the full funding and support of the, of the Indian government? So I would like to see the Indian leadership to have a little bit more ambition on the in the space field on the in this domain because it is really beneficial for the country and its national interest in the long run. So I would like to see that happen. Akash asks, is the Russian annexation of Ukraine justified or is it immoral and injudicious? Okay, so first of all, it's uh, it's not the whole of Ukraine that was annexed. It was, I think, uh, the, the Crimean Peninsula in the Black Sea, which was annexed, I think, in the early 2010s, in 2014, if I'm not mistaken. I may be off by a year or two. That's fine. Doesn't matter. But it's in it's the Crimean Peninsula, was which was annexed by... Russia. Is it immoral? There's nothing moral or immoral in, in geopolitics. It's all about the pursuit of the national interest by any means necessary. There is no morality in the national interest. It's all about cold, hard calculations and achieving your objectives in the best possible way, using the uh, least possible resources. Is it, in, is it injudicious? Well, did Russia suffer any repercussions? None at all. So it's a very good step. It was not injudicious in the least. So let's again look at this uh, matter from the maps perspective, geographical perspective. So let's go eastward. Oh, sorry, westwards. This here is the Black Sea, and this peninsula here in the center of the image is the Crimean Peninsula. As you can see, there is this dashed line here, which Google has placed which indicates that they are not happy with the annexation, but it is a de facto annexation and they can do nothing about it. So here, over here to the east, if you can see my pointer, this is Russian territory, it's Russia. This nation here is the Ukraine. 
and Crimea was a part of the Ukraine and Russia annexed it. So there's a story behind this, right? So it uh, so to understand these matters of geopolitics, you actually have to understand history because there's always a backstory and there's some context to anything that happens right now, right? Everything that happens right now has some contextual uh, linkages in the cause and effect chain that go back several centuries typically. So we have to go back to the time of the Mongol Empire. So in the 13th century, Chinggis Khan emerged out of nowhere in Mongolia and he conquered a vast territory which uh, included at the time Mongolia, China and uh, Iran and Central Asia, right? And after he died, the territory was expanded by his sons who indulged in pure conquest. They did not do it in retaliation. They just did it for the sake of conquest, his sons. So after Chinggis Khan died, his territory was divided among his sons and it was his grandson, Jochi. It was his grandson, Jochi, who was the, uh, who established, it wasn't his grandson, Jochi. His son was Jochi. His grandson was Batu, Jochi's son. So Chinggis Khan's grandson, Batu Khan, established the so-called Golden Horde, which was the northwest uh, section of the Mongol Empire. And that essentially included much of Russia and Eastern Europe. And the Crimea region was part of it, right? So after a couple of centuries, about the 15th century or somewhere like that, when the Mongol Empire began to wane, that's when Crimea became an independent Khanate, a kingdom which was called a Khanate. It was called the Crimean Khanate. So it was a Turkey-sized kingdom a Turkish-sized Khanate, an Islamic kingdom, which was then in the 18th century most likely annexed by the Russian Empire. Now the Russian Empire became the USSR after the Russian Revolution in, I think, 1917. And so Crimea became part of the USSR, as did Ukraine. Now, what happened was that the USSR assigned this region of Crimea to Ukraine at the time. Ukraine was a part of the USSR. So Crimea was assigned to Ukraine for administrative purposes, for the purpose of administration, right? For bureaucratic purposes. So Ukraine, so Crimea became part of the Ukraine in the USSR, inside the USSR, this nation. Now, after the Soviet Union, after the USSR disintegrated in the early 1990s, all the various uh, republics such as Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Ukraine, etc. declared their independence and seceded from this old nation and they all became independent nations. And what happened was that Ukraine kept Crimea as an independent nation after it declared its independence. So Crimea became part of the independent nation of Ukraine in the early 1990s. And at that time, Russia was in a deep recession. Russia was very weak. It was disintegrating. Not the USSR, but Russia. And you had Boris Yeltsin in power who was, well, he was not the best leader. And therefore, Crimea remained with the Ukraine as an accident of history. Now, after Boris Yeltsin um, went his way and Vladimir Putin came in, Vladimir Putin quickly reorganized the country, took control of the country, started strengthening it economically, militarily again, etc. And he was always aware of this uh, historical injustice that was the uh, 
that was that Crimea remained with the with Ukraine, became part of the Ukraine after the disintegration of the USSR. And that's why he always had his eyes on the Crimean Peninsula. In 2008, I believe the Ukrainians were complaining about uh, Vladimir Putin issuing Russian passports to people who lived in the Crimea. And things soon came to a head. And in 2014, the Russians, basically Vladimir Putin, annexed Crimea. So for them, it is perfectly legitimate. It was always part of the USSR. It was always part of the Russian Empire. And the Russian state, the the country of Russia today, is the inheritor of the legacy of the Russian Empire. And therefore, for him, it is perfectly legitimate that Crimea returns to Russia. And there's a significant Russian population as well. So there is no right or wrong. They saw this as a historical injustice and they redressed it by means, means of taking military action. Right? So they have done what they saw is right, what they feel is right. And there is no there is no morality or immorality in this. It's all about the balance of power. Power will do what power does. And that is the rule of geopolitics. There is no, <laughs> there is no morality or any such thing in that. It's all about furthering your national interest. And that's what Vladimir Putin does relentlessly. So that's about Ukraine and the Crimea. Shreya asks, please talk about Mao and his smash sparrow campaign. Many Chinese communists are really dumb, but the world should protect itself and wait for them to do something stupid like smash sparrow campaign and cause self-harm. So that's an interesting story. So Mao Zedong came to power in China in 1949, if I am not entirely, if, if I'm correct. And he was in this. Uh, he was trying to emulate the USSR. He wanted to replicate the kind of industrialization uh, and military economic power the US, USSR had. He he idolized Joseph Stalin. So in in 1958, he embarked upon the great leap forward, in which he tried to reconfigure the whole nation and turn peasants and farmers into in, into industrial workers and all that. And one of the things he embarked upon in this stage in 1958, the Great Leap Forward, was the eradication of four pests. It was uh, it was the sparrow, like you said, the fly, the mosquito, and the rat. So he asked the people of his country, of China, to go after these pests and destroy them all, eradicate them all. So one of these was the sparrow, and the logic was that the sparrows ate a great deal of uh, food grains that were meant for humans and create, created and caused a great deal of loss to the Chinese nation. So the Chinese peasants all went after the sparrows. They destroyed sparrow nests, they smashed sparrow eggs, and they basically chased sparrows until the sparrows got so exhausted they fell out of the sky and died. So uh, within a couple of years, what you found was that there was a famine in China. A terrible, terrible, horrific famine. And what actually happens is that the sparrows don't just eat some food grains, they eat insects and they eat pests. And when the sparrows disappeared, these pests multiplied and locusts and all kinds of things, uh, you know, multiplied across China. And it, it caused devastating uh, destructions of crops. And so China went into a terrible famine the estimates of the deaths are between 40 million to 80 million people who died because of Mao's stupid step, right? And the, the, the tragic thing 
is that the Chinese government had stocks of food grains, but they never released those. And therefore, the most horrific things happened in China. There was widespread cannibalism of the worst. I mean, there's no cannibalism of the worst kind. It was just cannibalism, which is the most horrific thing you can imagine. And an unimaginable amount of suffering. This is something even now the Chinese government is very reluctant to speak about. They have still not released uh, the records they have of the time. So yeah, so this is what the, the, the Chinese did. This is what Mao did. He caused the deaths of 40 to, 40 to 80 million of his own country people by embarking upon this stupid smash sparrow campaign. So will the Chinese do something like this in, in the future? No. They learn from their mistakes. Unlike other countries. I do not believe the Chinese will ever do something that stupid again, like the Smash Spiral campaign, right? So nowadays there has been a resurgence in certain things like that, like uh, instead of sparrows, they're saying kill cockroaches and all that, uh, which is really not going to have the same kind of effect. The Chinese are a very pragmatic people, especially the Chinese Communist Party. They learn from their mistakes. They use science and data to take the country forward. So I don't see the Chinese doing something stupid like that in the future. But this was a monumental disaster as far as the Chinese are concerned. Mao Zedong, my, my God, that guy was, he did some terrible things to his own country. So this is one of those. Okay, Somen asks, Russia today is mainly run on money from oil, gas and defense industries and people say most money are being stashed by the oligarchs in London and Swiss banks instead of being reinvested to diversify and benefit the Russian economy. Is Putin corrupt man or is he really a nationalist? Is Russia being slowly hollowed out? Well, good question. Now, when you talk about oligarchy, the USA is the biggest oligarchy. It is big tech and the billionaires or the trillionaires who run everything. There are no trillionaires yet, but a significant portion of the value or the money or the wealth in the US is in the hands of a very, very small number of people. The US is the most unequal country in the world, whether we realize it or not. It's a great place to live in if you are rich and if you have a great income. It's a terrible place for the poor. You have no idea of the homelessness and the misery that the poor experience in the US. So we see the US through rose-tinted glasses because Indians tend to do well there. But it's not a great place for someone who is not rich. Now, when it comes to oligarchy, yes, Russia is using that model. Vladimir Putin is using that model. See, Vladimir Putin is very clear about the fact that he doesn't believe about believe in democracy. It's Russia is not a democracy. It doesn't even pretend to be one. It's just a show, a facade that it puts on, you know, as, as kind of a joke as kind of a taunt to the world that, see, we have this election every few years and Vladimir Putin always wins. It, it has no pretenses to democracy. What, Raj, uh, what, what Vladimir Putin is doing, essentially, is he's, re, he's resuscitating the Russian Empire. That's what he is doing. So he's essentially the Tsar of Russia, the new Tsar. The same way that, the, that Xi Jinping is the emperor of China. Right? They do not believe in democracy. They do not see that democracy is the right solution or the right system for their culture. And I don't see anything wrong with, with their, that, that approach. And the uh, imperial system of Russia was always like this. A few people who run the country, right? The Tsar and his ministers and his favored uh, industrialists who run the country and deal with, uh, take care of business. And very strong economy and very strong, not economy, very strong military. 
So that is the imperial model of Russia. And that's precisely what Vladimir Putin has recreated. Is Russia being hollowed out? I don't see Russia being hollowed out. Russia is actually increasing in prosperity compared to where it was in the 1990s, right? It's, it's, he's basically arrested the slide of Russia. People used to have long queues for fuel and food in the 90s. Today, people are happy, are at least much happier than before. There's always this protests for democracy that are engineered by the West. But democracy is not something that's in the blood or the DNA of the Russian people, right? They are perfectly happy with an imperial, imperial system, with a Tsar system. So that's what's happening in Russia. Yes, some people are getting really rich. But overall, the standards are improving and the country is more secure than before. It has a very powerful military. It has a reasonably good economy. Uh, if you look at the kind of population Russia has, and it's it has stable borders, it is uh, pursuing its national interests. And it is, uh, well, so that's what's happening. So uh, he, I would say that Putin is definitely a, a nationalist. And is he corrupt? Well, I don't know what definition of corrupt to use. But uh, he's very straightforward about what he's doing. He's quite transparent about, and he is unapologetic about what he's doing. So that's why he is so widely admired among certain sections of the of the world, right? So that's what's happening under Mr. Putin in Russia. Aman asks, what's your opinion about the relevance of organizations like BRICS and the SCO with all their contradictions and incoherent objectives? So when you have an organization like the BRICS or the SCO, it these organizations typically go in a certain direction and the, that direction is determined by which is the strongest and most influential country in this group. And in both these organizations, BRICS or SCO, the Chinese are the most powerful and most influential and, and the richest. And therefore, these organizations have a certain agenda, which is to, to further the Chinese, uh, Chinese agendas and the Chinese national interest. Now, BRICS is a more of a loose configuration, and it doesn't really have much of, uh, much of a direction in, in which it is going. There is a BRICS bank, which does some lending for development work in various countries, etc. But it's essentially going in the direction of China. And SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, is basically run by two countries, China and, and, and Russia. India is now a part of it, but India is basically a junior member. India doesn't really set the agenda. So when you have organizations like these, it's always the heavyweights who set the agenda and take the organization in a certain direction. The overall objective of these organizations is always to further the agenda and national interest of the predominant member or members. And that is what we see. Right, so that's why India had something called SARC, but it never never took off because China, because Pakistan is a member of SARC, and Pakistan was always sabotaging what India was doing, and India always kept Pakistan as an equal, and now basically India seems to have abandoned the entire idea of SARC. India should look into creating a, a Indian Ocean Region Alliance or of some of some sort, but first of all, India needs to become more powerful economically and militarily and then it can do and then it can think of think along these lines so essentially to answer your question in brief it's all about the relevance is that they further the agenda and the national interest of the most powerful countries within these organizations so that's what BRICS and SCO whether the whether the objective the the foundational objective is that or not eventually it's always that this is what keeps this is what ends up happening it 
furthers the national interest and agenda of the most powerful country or countries within the organization. Okay, Papa Boy. What's my view on uh, Russia as a geopolitical ally? Russia is an interesting uh, nation, very interesting from our perspective, from India. In the past, India was a satellite state of the USSR. India depended uh, depended on the USSR for handouts and, and technology and uh, various things and and support on the industry on the on the international stage, etc. Today, these are two different uh, policies and two different worldviews to some extent, right? Russia and India. Russia has its own agenda and its own uh, own objectives on the global stage. India seems to have its own uh, national interest, which differs to some extent from what the Russians want, right? India basically, as of today, doesn't see itself as a big geopolitical player. India seems India seeks stability and security in the in the near abroad of India. So that's all that India is seeking right now. And India obviously has a big problem with China, the expansionist hegemonic rise of China which threatens India to a great deal. And it also threatens Russia to a great deal. So the thing is, India and Russia still do have a great deal of trust because of the shared history. And there are shared... Well, the shared history goes back, not much beyond the USSR. And there's a great deal of uh, cultural resonance between India and Russia. So there, is, even though Russia and, uh, and India are no longer explicit geopolitical allies, there is a great deal of warmth to some extent. Now, I said I I did say that they that warmth and ethics and all that have no place in geopolitics, but they do smooth things over when things uh, when there are when there is some friction and all that. And I will say that uh, Russia and India, the geopolitical interests ally to the extent that both see China as a big threat. Now, this may seem strange because Russia is allying to some extent with China right now on the economic front, in the military front, also to some extent doing joint military exercises and the vote along similar lines in the U- in the UN, etc. So there seems to be a kind of alliance between Russia and China. But as you know, as I've said before, the Russians have also pointed nuclear missiles at the Chinese, right? Even at the Chinese, uh, the Russian-Chinese border. So you have this border here. Where are we? So this here is China. This here is Russia, this enormous country. And there is a shared border to the east, right, over here. This is the shared border. And there is another shared border, a small 50-kilometer stretch over here between Mongolia and the nation of Kazakhstan. So the Russians have deployed batteries of Iskander nuclear missiles, ballistic missiles, at various points along the border. And the Russians also have long-range ballistic missiles pointed at various parts in China, including especially Beijing. And I can imagine that the Chinese would also have returned the favor, returned the favor and pointed missiles at, at, Bay, at, at uh, Moscow. So even though these two countries appear to be geopolitical allies, they are actually long-term adversaries. They have almost gone to war in the past. The USSR almost decided to nuke China in the 1960s. So they have a very fraught uh, relationship in the past and it's not going to get so better anytime soon because the Russians, because the Chinese have designs on Siberian territory and they see it as an unfinished agenda. So the Russians don't trust the Chinese the least. 
when it comes to trust, they trust India much more than that. And they see India as a more reliable long-term partner, if not an ally. And that's why we see that the Russians are selling the S-400 missile system to India as well as to China, right? So they have sold it to China first, but then they're selling it to India as well to counterbalance China. So Russia is an interesting nation. I think India and Russia will continue to have a good long-term relationship. It all depends on how China behaves and how the India-US relationship goes. The Russians are not happy about the Indians getting closer to the US. But that's inevitable because of the geopolitical situation vis-a-vis China. But I think over the long term, India and Russia will have a good relationship. And depending on how the US, uh, how the Russia-China relationship goes, India and Russia could even get closer in the future, depending on various factors such as these. So it's complicated, but overall it's a good relationship. And it could become stronger in the future, geopolitically, maybe even an alliance someday. Anirudh asks, China is a powerhouse of global trade and heavily relies on shipping routes across the Indian Ocean that requires passage to the Malacca Strait. Why can't India take it as a serious opportunity, much more than right now, to strongly militarize and build secure naval bases at the Andaman and Nicobar Islands, which lie at the Strait's mouth, eventually even making it possible to completely block their trade via this route? Okay, let me show the map once again. So this here is the map. And the Malacca route, the Malacca Straits are here. So this is a narrow choke point, the Malacca Strait, as you can see here, which connects the Indian Ocean region to the South China Sea, the so-called South China Sea. And this is the, the route by, via which all trade happens between the West and China. All shipping has to pass through the Malacca Strait, right? So that is a significant choke point, and India has this nat- natural advantage of having the Andaman and Nicobar Island chain over here. This is the southmost island over here, right? So if India were to militarize these islands and create naval bases and other military infrastructure here, it would be a piece of cake if India had a strong navy to interdict naval passage through the Malacca Strait at will. And that could have very significant repercussions on the Chinese economy and on the Chinese Navy, right? So one could block access for the Chinese Navy as well. And one could block uh, trade access for China. So that is one choke point. The other one is over here, the Strait of Djibouti. There's another one over here, the Persian Gulf, the Strait over here. So there are these choke points that India has access to. India can utilize them if India has a strong blue water navy. So the question is, why isn't India doing that? Ah, Well, I don't know why India isn't doing that. India should do it. India could create these bubbles, you know, A2, AD bubbles, uh, which can interdict any kind of movement through these regions, aircraft movement or, or naval movement or submarine movement. So if in the future India develops a blue water navy, India would have a very, very significant geopolitical advantage. India would become a global geopolitical player just by creating a powerful blue water navy and controlling the entire Indian Ocean region. It's easy for India to do it. All India has to do is to invest heavily in the navy over the next 10, 15 years and develop a large number of ships of various kinds and sizes. The main thing about a navy is how many missiles it can carry on a given day, 
how many missiles can it dis- deploy at sea on any given day so it, it is not about the number of ships you have it's about the number of missiles you can deploy and how well you can deploy those missiles which means what is the kind of distributed lethality you have is your lethality distributed or is it concentrated an aircraft carrier is concentrated lethality missile boats small missile boats large numbers is distributed lethality so india needs to think about this very seriously i think india has a heaven sent opportunity to become the custodian of the seas like it always keeps saying india's ministry of foreign affairs keeps on saying this slogan that the indian ocean region is our strategic backyard but india does nothing to actually act upon it right so i hope that someday in the future soon india's leadership will develop the ambition and the vision to make india stronger and to further india's national interests in the long run by investing strongly in the navy because india's land routes are cut off right now everywhere india has no access to either asia or to europe because everything is cut off via pakistan and and china so the heaven sent opportunity for india is the sea india should become a strong a powerful maritime nation i would say that india, india should become one of the top 3 maritime nations so i hope that it happens and it's possible all the things are there you can see it in the geographical uh, you can see it in the map it's all possible as long the only thing india has to do is invest in a navy so i hope it is done soon okay omkar asks do you think the decision by pakistan to gift the shapksgum valley of Bil- of gilgit baltistan is a cunning strategy of involving a third party in the kashmir dispute eventually making it dis- difficult to resu- to resolve and india and if india takes back pok in the future how can we deal with china on the shapksgum valley let's go back to the map let me show you where this is so this is the map here so as you can see google has placed these dotted lines to indicate that these are territories that india doesn't hold or in, that india should not be holding or something like that so the shaksgum valley is basically here this here this place here this northern region so some part of it has been ceded by pakistan to china it is part of pok but now it has become cojk china occupied jammu kashmir including aksai chin as well so this northern region if you can see my mouse pointer here this is roughly the shaksgum valley area which the pakistanis have gifted to china in order to complicate the jammu and kashmir issue so yes it does complicate the matter if india were to regain pok through military means then shaksgum valley will remove remain an outstanding dispute so how can we deal with china and the shaksgum valley well the we have to take a long term approach right uh, it is not being going to be possible for india to take back pok unless the tibet issue is resolved and unless tibet gains its free its freedom if that happens then china will be cut off from pakistan in which case india will be able to deal with pakistan in a separate manner so that's what needs to happen china has the has complicated matters uh, pakistan has complicated matters by ceding this territory to the chinese so yeah it's a cunning ploy it's a very good ploy actually if you look at it from a cold rationalist perspective okay abhishek asks would you consider the achievements of the indians abroad such as indian origin big tech ceos political figures like kamala harris 
as a contributing factor for Indi increasing Indian influence in positions of power in international forums. Okay, so we know that uh, Mr. Sundar Pichai is the boss of Google. Mr. Satya Nadella is the boss of Microsoft and various other people are in positions of power. How does it further India's interests? Does it further India's interests? Let's go back to the map. This is the Google map, right? Google is run by Mr. Sundar Pichai. Let's go here to Northern India. This is Aksai Chin, which is held by the Chinese, correct? Let me turn this off for a second. Let me click over here and see what it says. It says unavailable. It says that this region is disputed. Let's click here near Gilgit. It says unavailable. It doesn't say India. It says unavailable. Let's go to Srinagar and click here. It just gives some number. It doesn't say it's part of India. Right? Over here. Let's try it. Again, some number. Let's go near Nepal. This is the India-Nepal boundary, yes. Let's click near the India-Nepal boundary over here. Okay, it says Uttar Pradesh here. Sure, all right. There are places even near the India-Nepal boundary where it doesn't say India. Let's go here and see what happens. Let's click here. It says Nepal, even though it's on the Indian side of the border. Can you see this? It says India here, but if you click there, it says Nepal on the Indian side of the border. In Indian territory. So this is Mr. Sundar Pichai's Google. Does it seem to have increased India's influence anywhere? It hasn't. So when your people work for a foreign country and become foreign citizens, it doesn't really uh, increase your influence. Unless you're like China and you use them as double agents and all that, right? So India doesn't play the geopolitical game. India doesn't use this as leverage. India has so many Indians in the US who work in the US and contribute to the US economy and contribute to the US national interest. China also has a number of Chinese citizens, great number of Chinese origin people in the US, and many of them work on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party. They have become double agents. India simply doesn't play this game. Right? I mean, India has much more leverage than China in the US. If you look at these people like Mr. Sundar Pichai, Satya Nadella, Indra Nui, Kamala Harris, who is now vice president, etc. Kamala Harris is very much anti-India, FYI, despite being uh, of partial Indian origin. So it's all about how you play the game, whether you seek influence or not, whether you build influence networks or not. You have to influence, you have to, you have to invest in influence networks. You have to influence you have to invest in power networks. You have to invest in people. And you have to play this game of influence. India simply doesn't play this game. India is not able to control people within its own borders. Right? There are so many uh, so-called anti-national elements in India who actually advocate the national interests of other countries. So India's government needs to, I don't know, change the way it plays the game or, or start playing the geopolitical game because there is so much that India can achieve by leveraging the prominent people and other non-prominent people that India has all across the world. You go to any country in the world, you'll find Indians there, any country in the world. You'll find lots of Indians there, especially developed countries, Western countries, right? India, I mean, Australia, New Zealand, the Western world, anywhere. You're going to run into Indians anywhere on the street if you go there, any country. If you go to London, it feels like you're in India, essentially, right? There are so many Indians there. And the same goes for New York and all the major cities in the US. So India should learn how to leverage this, this uh, 
opportunity that it has, right? The same with the Chinese do, the same with the Israelis do across the world. So there's a there's a great deal that India can quickly achieve if it were to leverage that. Right now, all that happens is that these people they serve the national interests of the countries they live in. That's all. So as you can see with Google, despite Google's boss being an Indian or or at least of Indian origin, it essentially goes against India's national interest and and uh, and shows Indian territory as part of Nepal or as disputed territory. Right? It's just one example of many. So as of now, it doesn't really help India in any way whatsoever. How big of a role, Akash asks, how big of a role does religion or culture play in determining the geopolitical stance of a country? For example, India acts neutral most of the time. Is it because of India's culture or lack of political will? Well, India's culture has never been neutral. India's culture has always been look out, look abroad, go out, go outside, etc. India's history shows that we have always expanded outwards and gone to various parts of the world and even settled there. Even the past 2000 years, we had the Cholas and Kanishka and various various uh, emperors of India and uh, national leaders who had this forward-looking policy. So India has historically never been a neutral country. India has historically been a net exporter of influence and culture and power. India has also conquered territories far beyond its borders, right? So historically, India has not been like this. It's not India's culture. India's culture is liberal and diverse and plural and tolerant and respectful, but it is not timid. India's culture has never been timid, but it's it's since 1947 that India has acted like this. So culture does play a significant role in the geopolitical stance of a country. Russia has a certain culture and it plays a certain kind of geopolitical game. The Chinese have a certain culture. They play a certain kind of geopolitical game. The same goes for Middle Eastern countries. The same goes for European or Western countries or the Anglo-Saxon countries, the, the five eyes countries, the US, UK, Australia, New Zealand and Canada and the Latin countries as well, etc. So every culture has a certain style of playing geopolitics, and that's what you see. Well, India also has its style, but right now what we are seeing is a very different style. It's a it's a post-independence Nehruvian style of geopolitics, right? So that's what we have seen since independence. So it's basically this Indian neutral game that India stays neutral in everything. India has no opinion and will play no part in world affairs. It's a lack of political will, nothing else. It's a lack of confidence among the leadership. So it's all about uh, it's all about the kind of leadership that India is able to find. Right now, the political system is such that only a certain kind of leader is allowed to emerge. Right? There's plenty of leadership potential in this country, plenty of greatness, but that greatness is such that it disdains the political system, which is so dirty, and therefore it never it is never able to come to to power. And if a certain kind of person does go through the political system, over the years they make a lot of compromises and they become a different kind of person. And then again, you have the same style of leadership that emerges again. So I, I'm not saying every leader is like that. In recent times, we have had much better leaders, as you know. But overall, it's about confidence, it's about developing India into a powerful country that also builds their confidence and, and changes their outlook. So India needs to become a powerful economy. India is not a powerful economy right now. And it, India needs to become a powerful military 
which will take some political will so essentially it's about india's status as a country on the geopolitical stage india doesn't see itself i mean india's leadership doesn't see india as a, as a powerful country or as a big player so when the chinese were an impoverished nation they had global leadership aspirations in the 1970s onwards during mao zedong's time he wanted to be a global leader when china was in the throes of incredible famines and in misery and poverty right so china has always aspired to global leadership position if even when its gdp was down in the dumps so it's all about your ambition it's all about your outlook it's the, about the confidence that your leaders have so that is what india needs it's nothing to do with india's culture india's culture has always been forward looking outward looking and it's always been an extremely confident culture it's about the leadership that this current political system is throwing out it is designed to give us a certain kind of leader so that's what needs to change india needs to change its political system somehow now the current political leadership is invested in the political culture of india and they don't want it to change because it's what brought them to power india's politicians want things to stay the same india's bureaucrats want things to stay the same india's institutions want things to stay the same because these are self-serving institutions to a large extent unfortunately i'm not saying everybody is bad there are many good people within the indian system but they are unable to effect the change because of the inertia of the system and because the system is devised in a certain way so india needs a solution to this reforms significant strong reforms right revolutionary reforms only that can change india so let's see how that goes Okay Black Tiger asks will we ever be able to take back our Punjab Sindh POK is if yes then how yes we will be able to take it back it won't happen tomorrow it won't happen over the next 5 years it can happen in the next 20 years so it's like this see to reach the moon you must aim at the stars therefore to take back our territories you have to aim further so essentially the solution to the pakistan problem the pakistan the solution to the pok punjab sindh etc problem lies elsewhere it lies in tibet what india needs to aim for over the next 20 to 30 years is to ensure the liberation of tibet from chinese occupation that would also have the effect of of causing the disintegration of the communist party in china because no chinese empire can withstand such a setback so india needs to slowly steadily assiduously work towards freeing tibet from china over the next 20 or 30 years the moment that happens the punjab sindh pok problem will be solved automatically because pakistan will lose its major supporter and it will crumble pakistan can also be made to crumble that way so india needs to think big india needs to stop looking at pok india needs to look beyond the pok that is the way to achieve geopolitical objectives india basically should aspire to become a global power that one of the top 2 or top 3 powers in the next 20 or 30 years that's the only way this these things will be solved the moment you become that powerful all of your local near near abroad problems they resolve themselves on their own so that is the solution that's what india needs to work towards india needs to expand rapidly economically 
militarily in the sense of influence and power and all that and then if you if india does that all these objectives will be achieved aman asks what are the reasons behind the phenomenon of wolf warrior diplomacy being pursued by china in the recent years it's a good question so this wolf warrior diplomacy is essentially a more vigorous and uh, more more assertive diplomacy that the chinese have been pursuing under the leadership of mr xi jinping so traditionally the chinese have had a very different style of diplomacy right they had a leader called deng xiaoping who basically uh, rescued china from the ravages of the mao mao era and he brought china back to normalcy and then he started making china a more powerful country and he had this principle tao guang yang hui which means keep a low profile bide your time while also getting something accomplished so he wanted china to work quietly steadily towards its objectives towards of building a more a more powerful economy and a more powerful military and building diplomatic uh, a powerful diplomacy diplomatic system etc while keeping a low profile so during mr deng xiaoping's time the chinese diplomats would basically uh they would avoid controversy and they used to use cooperative cooperative rhetoric and cooperative language with everybody else right so they were very polite they were very self effacing and that was the kind of uh, approach the chinese diplomats had now under mr xi jinping china has a very different approach towards everything so mr xi jinping believes that china's time has come now he is advocating his country people to have four confidences four confidences this is the approach he is advocating he is saying the chinese people should have the conf- have confidence in their chosen path the chosen path of the chinese communist party they should have confidence in the political system of the chinese communist party they should have confidence in the guiding theories of the chinese communist party and they should have confidence in the chinese culture these are the four confidences so now china has becoming is is becoming an increasingly strident and nationalistic country and the diplomats have totally changed their approach they are now very happy to court controversy they are actively courting courting controversy on on various media twitter facebook not facebook twitter mostly and in the statements they make and they are now using very confro- con- confrontational and aggressive rhetoric in their statements so this is the new approach of the chinese diplomats and this is what is now being termed as wolf warrior diplomacy so this coincides 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 with china's so called rise china is much more confident now it is a much more assertive nation and it is not afraid to make strong statements and and take a confrontational attitude in its diplomacy so that is essentially the so called wolf warrior diplomacy it is named after a after a couple of chinese movies so this is a good question kostub asks does india hold any land in antarctica like a couple of other nations in future what are the advantages of capturing land there minerals resources navy etc let's take a look at antarctica let me remove the comment first okay so antarctica is right to the south of india there is nothing between india and antarctica you just go south you'll reach antarctica 
This here is Antarctica, the South Pole region, and this continent here. So India does have some holdings. In it's not holdings. India does have three research stations, I believe, three of them in Antarctica, where it does research, scientific research. So India, as of now, right now, as we speak, has about 30 or 40 scientific personnel deployed in these uh, research stations where various kinds of scientific research is being done. Now, there are, all, I think, seven or eight or nine nations that have territorial claims to Antarctica. But these claims are not being pursued in any way. There is the so-called Antarctic Treaty that everybody, that these various na nations have signed, including India and China, which prohibits any action or any exploitation of the resources of Antarctica. So Antarctica does have resources, minerals, etc. But as of today, it is economically unviable or unfeasible to extract them because of the because it's so far first of all from, from every other place and because it is ice bound so it's very difficult to mine these things but as global warming happens and all that so it may become viable economically in the future to do mining there so yes many countries have interests in antarctica chile is one country which has laid claims to antarctica the, the french have claims in antarctica strangely enough and some other countries, I think the US has it as well. So the Chileans have research stations here. They have about 450 personnel deployed there. The Americans have over a thousand scientists and other personnel in Antarctica. The Chinese have five stations, five research stations. And they have about 200 personnel in Antarctica. I think they have four research stations and the fifth one is being constructed as we speak. So there is uh, this preparation going on among all these various world powers for a future push towards Antarctica. So India does have three research stations and India does have a more or less round the year presence in Antarctica. But as of now, as of today, the Antarctica region is not being used or exploited economically in any way. But in the future, the, the cards are always on the table. It may definitely happen in the future. So yeah, India is, uh, sorry. So yeah, India does have some uh, nominal holdings in Antarctica, but India doesn't have any territorial claims there, unlike various other nations. So in the future, Antarctica will maybe be viable if global warming makes it possible. Anirudh asks, there have been a couple of dozen mysterious deaths of ISRO scientists over the past few decades, including Vikram Sarabhai's and also an episode of having Nambi Narayan, Narayanan charged with false espionage. Do you think there's a strong foreign hand involved in all these cases, having tried hindering our space research program? Well, there was Dr. Homi Baba who died in a plane crash, a mysterious plane crash in the French, in the Swiss Alps, I believe, I think in the 1960s or, yeah, probably 1960s. So yes, there have been many deaths of scientists, Indian scientists, and there is definitely a foreign hand that seeks to stop India's progress in the fields of science and technology, whether it is space science or the nuclear sciences, etc. It's always there. There are the global powers don't want a new global power to emerge. And India has immense potential. The whole world knows it. India hasn't achieved its own potential because of various factors, mostly its own internal problems. 
right india system is a system of mediocrity it 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 raises people it raises mediocre people to the top unfortunately whether the education system or the political system mostly not always mostly there are always exceptions but mostly that's the kind of system we have so india has been self sabotaging itself because of its system but also there is the foreign hand various global powers you can guess who they are who have been trying to prevent india from acquiring various technologies or developing various technologies you had the us sanctions in the wake of the indian nuclear tests in 98 you had the us sanctions uh, on uh, the india space program when india was trying to acquire cryogenic technology from the russians the americans stopped that because russia was a very weak country at the time in the late 90s so yes the americans have been involved in this the chinese have very much been involved in this and some other countries may also possibly be involved in trying to sabotage india's scientific advancement so yes these these episodes and occurrences that you speak about are definitely there is definitely an, an element of foreign interference in this so yeah i agree it's there it, it will continue to be there unless india takes certain specific actions Shivansh asks uh, what was the impact of the chernobyl nuclear disaster on the geopolitical scene was it a major reason for the dissolution of the soviet union and how did this impact the world so it was not one of the major factors that caused the dissolution of the ussr but it had a significant impact on the confidence that mikhail gorbachev had on the soviet uh, nuclear industry and on soviet scientists it became clear that they were basically not following the best practices and um, the various programs were basically there there were great deals of inefficiencies and and bureaucratic bungling and the thing was not very well run so mikhail gorbachev lost confidence in the this process in the soviet scientific system the world also began to see the ussr in a different light it, it was not seen as this it stopped seeing the ussr as its all powerful technologically advanced nation and uh, basically it it uh, had a very bad effect on the image of the ussr in the world and so there was a secondary kind of effect on the eventual dissolution of the ussr i do not see it as a primary cause of the dissolution or the disintegration of the ussr but yes it it did have some effect okay one more question does india have a vision for where it will be after 100 years of independence just like the chinese have it well i don't know if the indian leadership has a vision for that because we don't know who's going to be in power in 2047 india doesn't have a stable political system anything can happen at any time a new political party comes to power and they will reverse all the policies of the previous political system or the party that's what we have seen time and again and again and sometimes when you have these coalition governments that come to power for 3 months or 5 months they they basically put in disastrous policies like what ik gujral did he basically exposed all the indian intelligence assets in pakistan even morarji decided that these were people who came to power because of coalition politics so india's political system isn't stable right and therefore the political leaders they only have a vision for what they want to achieve in their own political party and when you have a strong leader like right what we have right now even their tenure is not certain right uh, 
I mean, who knows what's going to happen in the next election? One hopes it continues, but uh, we don't know. So the political system isn't stable. It doesn't give you a great deal of certainty in the long run. And therefore, this system ensures that India's leadership doesn't have a long-term vision of where India wants to be. I am sure some leaders have a long-term vision of where India wants to be. But that vision isn't certain, right? Because of the vagaries of the Indian political system. In the case of China, the Chinese Communist Party will most likely be there until uh, 2049, when it will be 100 years of their independence, of the of the coming to power of the Chinese Communist Party. So they have political continuity. They have a continuity of policies and all that. And therefore, they are able to build a vision. They're able to have a vision and work towards that. In the case of India's so-called democratic, chaotic system, it's very hard to work towards a vision, election after election. But India should have a vision of where it wants to be. India should, in 2047, be at least a $20 trillion economy. India should have a full-fledged space program. India should have people on the moon, hopefully people on Mars as well. India should have a proper blue water navy. India should have resolved the Tibet issue and the POK issue and the Pakistan issue and the Afghanistan issue, right? India should be, in my opinion, the, one of the top two countries in the world by 2047. That should be India's vision. India's living standards should be way ahead of where they are today, right? India's per capita GDP should put the it in the middle income nations at least, right? India should have revamped its education system and become much more confident culturally than what it is today. So these are some of the things that India should aspire to and that's the kind of vision India should have. But will India's political system allow that? We don't know. I hope it does. So that's the kind of vision India should have in my personal opinion. Okay, right. Let me take a few live comments. Live chat comments. Good question by Kunal. Uh, where does India rank in cyber warfare? Well, these capabilities, if India does have them, will not be publicized. So as of now, we don't know. I hope India is working on that. I hope it is. India has the best IT talent in the world. India has the best scientific minds in the world. So India should rank well in cyber warfare. Maybe you should not demonstrate your capabilities unless you have to, until you have to. But as of now, we don't know where India ranks in this. When it comes to supercomputing, India is not a major supercomputing nation, right? India doesn't have the best supercomputers. Among the top 100 supercomputers, India may have maybe two or three supercomputers, perhaps. When it comes to Machine learning, artificial intelligence, India hasn't made many too many strides. When it comes to quantum computing, it's, it's not even taken off in, in India. So the signs aren't very good, but hopefully we are doing something maybe behind the scenes. So I hope India is doing well, but as of now, we don't know India's capabilities. At, 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 first, uh, at first glance, India doesn't seem to have very strong capabilities when it comes to cyber warfare, but I hope I hope I am wrong. Aditya asks, why can't we embrace one world instead of embracing nationality? I would like to, but will the world allow me to? <laughs> I mean, yeah, people talk about this. This is a very idealistic, moralistic position to take. I am not criticizing you. This is a good position to take. 
in an ideal world you would want to have one world with lots of different local cultures and no borders no visas no passports right but that's not how the world works the world works in a very different way in the west you have this globalism right now this which is now now big uh, big thing that's in that's in the west and they talk about having no borders and no and and the world is one and you should adopt our culture and you should adopt our values but hey have they abolished passports have they abolished visas no they are strengthening passports and visas and and national borders so it's not practical to to have one world instead of embracing nationality right every country is pursuing its national interest when that happens you have to embrace nationality right so this is an idealistic position it's great if this was to happen but it's never going to happen not within our lifetimes okay k money says i think it was the british who gave the coco islands to burma and the burmese who gave it to china okay let's talk about the coco islands so the coco islands are the northernmost islands in the andaman nicobar chain these are the coco islands it wasn't the british who gifted the coco islands to burma sir it was our great prime minister shri jawaharlal nehru who did that and if we look at the coco island here let me put on the satellite mode right so as you can see there is this extensive infrastructure here there is this airstrip coco island airport and there is all this infrastructure that you see here very well developed there are lots of facilities here it's very well planned very well developed etc this is not burmese these are not burmese facilities these are chinese facilities so the burmese junta junta whatever you call it they gifted it they handed it over this asset to the chinese so it was our great prime minister shri nehru who gave it to the burmese and it was the burmese who have basically handed it over to the chinese and the chinese have these this uh, scientific uh, station here it's a signal station it is basically used to listen to various kinds of signals and basically spy on indian activities in the andaman and nicobar islands so it's a very important asset for the chinese it gives them a very good idea of what's happening in this region because they have a great deal of interest in this region especially because of the malacca choke point so that is the situation it wasn't the british who gave it it was our great prime minister shri jawaharlal nehru what do i think about bhutan i think it's a great country sir if you have a specific question you can ask me okay some more questions Abhishek asks should India reoccupy the Cocoa Islands would it be a great geopolitical move given the coup and the China using the islands for military base well that would be an act of war against Burma and China both the question is sure it's a great move to take back the islands does India have the strength to take them back and retain them will there be any repercussions you have to see the overall effect of such a move you have to do a proper war gaming scenario in which you take into account all the effects second order effects all the repercussions right so i think india is not strong enough economically and militarily 
especially from a naval viewpoint to do this at this time right it, it would be construed as as an act of territorial aggression and it would basically legitimize any other territorial territorial aggression that china would take after this so india has to consider all of this in the big picture context and only then take a decision as of today in my opinion india cannot india should not do it until it has a proper blue water navy that can withstand any kind of threat from the chinese right so as of now it's not really possible okay let me take a couple of more questions geetam asks if war broke out in the south china sea will china invade taiwan will japan korea vietnam and the philippines ally with the us for war will india be pulled into this war also can india take advantage so i believe that uh, the south china sea issue is here let's see so this is the bone of contention taiwan it's an independent country uh, india doesn't seem to recognize it as an independent country india doesn't have diplomatic ties with taiwan and china reg- regards taiwan as a renegade province so china says that taiwan is very much a part of china and it will be reunified in due course of time and this is the number one target for china in the sh- short to medium term i believe china will take over taiwan taiwan in the next 5 to 10 years as its military and economic strength increases its naval strength increases and as the united states declines which is happening as we speak so i believe that the chinese will take over taiwan within the next 5 to 10 years they will at least make a move to do it make a move whether the us tries to stop them or not is to be seen china will do it only when they are completely sure that the us will not be in a position to fight back so this is in my opinion a matter of time will japan korea vietnam and the philippines ally with the us for war my my real question is will the us even have the appetite for war right so i think it's doubtful i think the chinese will make this move only when they are 100% confident that the us is no longer in a position to try and stop them and when this happens then the chinese navy will be free to move into the indian ocean because this threat is over so that is the big issue for india if slash when the chinese take over taiwan they will make a concerted effort to become the major indian ocean region power which is why i keep saying that india needs to act proactively and build a blue water navy right now when it has the time okay one final question one final question for today uh Okay what do i think about lakshadweep why does india not have a grip on this land so that the lakshadweep islands are north of the maldives they are on east india's western uh, coast of india's western coast all of these islands here off the coast of kerala india basically well it's it's our territory of course india does own this territory but india has basically lost some kind of uh, cultural control over this territory you could say right so like the lakshadweep have essentially become uh become kind of culturally like the maldives and now they are demanding cultural autonomy of sorts which is being aided and abetted by certain political parties in india so this is a strategically important region 
in my opinion india should develop some of these islands create some artificial islands if necessary like the chinese have done in the south china sea and build proper naval bases here so india should do this it's a very important strategic asset and resource for india it is something that is waiting to be developed it can be invaluable it can become another unsinkable aircraft carrier like the Laksh- like the andaman and nicobar islands already are potentially so i think india should develop these islands as naval and military bases and some of these can also be used for tourism and all, and all that right so whatever is happening right now on the political domain needs to be resolved quickly this sort of behavior cannot be uh, cannot be allowed right when people try to uh, demand a separate set of rules for a certain territory which is part of india so that's what needs to be done my friends uh, well i think we are done for today thank you very much for all of your wonderful very interesting questions we will continue doing this but for today it is the end of this episode so thank you for my so thank you so much for watching and i will see you 